Hi everybody, Peter Thomas Fornital here. Do you regularly enjoy this show or any of the shows on the In The Money Network? Well, do us a favor. Take less than four minutes to fill out our new audience survey. It's going to help us find our partners for 2020 and also to shape some of our content. I'll give you a couple of different ways to find the survey. Probably the easiest is to just go to my Twitter homepage. It's pinned to my page right there, twitter.com slash loomsboldly, and it'll be the tweet that's right at the top. If that sounds too complicated and you still want to help out, I'll give you a long URL to go directly to the survey, https colon slash slash peterfornatal.typeform.com slash to slash c-o-c-n-1-y. Yeah, like I said, probably easiest just to go to my Twitter. We really appreciate your help. Now here's Spencer Luganbuehl. Welcome to episode 17 of Redboard Rewind. Today, my special guest is Naira analyst, Andy Serling. We talk about a new way to look at key races, a creative take on a first-time starter, and why people who badmouth the Remsen are idiots. This is Red Board Rewind. It's the same old story in this cycle. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. It ain't good for me. What we do this for? We go back and forth. Won't do this no more. Always have it selling. Always have it And now I'd like to welcome my special guest, Andy Sterling. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks, Spencer. How are you? I'm doing all right after this great weekend of racing at Aqueduct. Just some questions I've always been wondering. I've been following Talking Forces since I was a fledgling player. With all the hard work you do, obviously, up in Saratoga, like 40 days of all those tough cards, what is your process breaking down a race, like from the time you get the PPs in your hand to the time where you come up with your selections for Talking Horses? First of all, let, let's call it easy work. I, okay. I think any any work where you're doing things you love is easy work. Hard work is people who are working jobs that are, you know, that are that are harder than than handicapping. Handicapping is great work. Um, so after that, what did you ask me again? <laughs> Clarify that. What's the uh, what's your process what, from the time you get the PPs off the computer onto an iPad to when you make your final selections for talking horses? Um, I, I like to sort of have a I, I wouldn't say I always follow an order, but I like to do things in a somewhat orderly fashion where the first thing I do is I go to a card and I use different colored pens to, so when I, cause a lot of times I'm on television and I'm looking at all this stuff I've scribbled down, some of which I can read, much of which I can't, <laughs> but I like to say, oh, this color represents this and this color represents that. So I start out with a blue pen. And I just go through the races and I try to look, you know, for the speeds or, you know, and try to get an overview. Is this a race that's as much as speeds possibly? Is this race that there aren't? You know, and, and I also want to know, you know, here's stuff I have to look up on formulator, whether is this a private purchase, writing down, you know, I got to look up the pedigrees on this horse. Uh, this is a replay I need to see and write down the replays and just go through the entire card, which usually takes half an hour to an hour, somewhere in there. Um, just a general run through where I familiarize myself with all the races. Then I go to Timeform US and I put in their figures down to just sort of have them as juxtaposition to buyer figures so I can look and see if there's a race where they disagree 
dramatically with a horse. So I can say, gee, you know, time form has this a very good race and the buyers have it a very bad race. Um, why the big difference? So I can look into that race more and try to determine if there's something I'm missing about such a, a, a particular race. Um, but I also want to put down their pace projector so I can give myself an idea that based on their pace figures, how they see the race being run, which is often a lot different than it will be just when you're looking at it with your eye. Um, then I go to Formulator on DRF, which I think is the greatest pro product in racing. And I use Formulator to uh, to just look up all kinds of information. I mean, there are times of the year where you don't need to spend enormous time. I only spend a half an hour on Formulator. There are times, especially in the Saratoga, where I'll spend an hour and a half on it. Looking up races that were mostly out of town, because races I'm not familiar with, who were in the races, how was the race on, how was that day, anything going on that day at the track and just try to familiarize myself more you know break down the pps a bit which formulator is so good at and also look up trainer stats which i've, I've notated in my first run through also you can use formulator to look up pedigrees right you can go in and look up the dam so first time starters first time turfers things like that um then i watch replays and i use a red pen for replays and i you know i'll go through the ones i already have and as i'm putting the card together there's usually some more replays and then after i've gathered all that information together I try to finish up the races and put them together. Some races are, are fairly straightforward, and some races take a lot more thought. So it's a, it's a process. But it's a lot of it, you know, you have to realize that I'm doing this to go on television and talk about the races. So a, a, a real portion of the work I'm doing is beyond handicapping and giving myself an opportunity to figure out what's going on in these races, what can I impart on TV that maybe um, isn't sort of readily available information or something that somebody may not have thought of before. I've always liked that when on TV, especially when I'm listening to you, is you're trying to not so much give picks as to give like the extra insight that the person who might just be walking through and having just grabbed a form, you're trying to give them that extra insight that they didn't have time to because, you know, they're working the nine to five or they just don't have enough time to handicap before they get to the track that day. And I really appreciate that when I was first starting out. Like I said, I would come in, I'd listen to Talking Horses, I'd take down as many notes as I could. Is there any angles that you remember using as a beginning handicapper that you still use today? Probably, but I, you know, I don't, I never, angles are a weird word to me because I, I think it's just, I'm not sure I could, I could easily put into words. It's funny. I mean, if, if I go back and look at Picking Winners, which is the first and one of the few handicapping books I ever read, I realized there are a lot of things that Andy Byer talks about in that book that I, I still use in my handicapping, the sort of the cornerstones of my mm -hmm. handicapping, what they are. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I think logic is, is highly underrated in life and in handicapping. I mean, a lot of things are just sort of logical to you. But, you know, I, I look at trainer stats to see that things that trainers are good with or bad with and see if there's particular things that they they do well. But I don't, you know, it's it's, I think it just, the more you handicap, you've seen situations in the past and maybe your brain sort of says, I've seen this before. We'll see if this can happen again, but specific angles, not really, it's not really something I'm looking for. You know, it's not like there are a lot of, you know, this trainer is great with blinkers off or this trainer is great with this. I don't have a lot of those at this point. You know, the, the, the trainers that I used to make money with sneaky moves with, I think they're all dead. <laughs> I know when you talk about trainer stats, when you look at like the bottom of a PP and you see the trainer stats, the one I'm looking right now would be for Candy Promises for Rudy Rodriguez in the third race. First off the claim, 129 starts 25%. But that doesn't really tell 
the meat of the story. It doesn't tell you what he does with horses under two to one or above ten to one. So I, I hate those stats. I, I wish they'd get rid of those. I think those are awful. I think they're they're more harmful than helpful. Because do you feel that just like the random person just looks for every type of twenty percent is like, okay, this horse should be able to fire today because this guy is good in you know five out of the six categories. Right, it's just dumb. I think that to use trainer stats properly, you need to say what is is there, and most horses they just don't not there, you know. Mm -hmm. But you want to say is there something specific going on in this horse? In other words, okay, it's fine if it's just Rudy Rodriguez off the claim claim to horse Aqueduct. He's running back in you know three weeks or something. Fine, okay, that's a pretty straightforward thing. How is Rudy done off the claim? But also on the dirt. And in many cases, Aqueduct. You know, I'll break down the trainer stats. I'll see how's Rudy off the claim of dirt. How is he in dirt sprints? How is he at dirt sprints at Aqueduct? How is he on the dirt at Aqueduct? I want to look at all those things and see if anything becomes specific. Those stats are all his claims. Well, he's terrible off the claim of the turf. He's great off the claim of the dirt. But yeah. together, he's just sort of okay. But that's – what story have you told there? Um, so those stats it should go away. I mean, the worst thing I see are these people that do stats. And they say this trainer is twenty-one uh, percent and uh, the dollar seventy-seven ROI. So I want to say to them, uh, okay, is that good or bad? That's a bad. Maybe you would take out, and he's winning around twenty-one percent. He's around a twenty-one percent trainer. So I've learned nothing from that stat. The person puts it up on television, and you say, why did you do that? <laughs> what what was gleaned from that? Unless you know, like Rudy is terrible, dropping fifty percent or more in the off the. 50% or more with claimers, not off the claim. That to me is interesting. So when Rudy Rodriguez has drop downs, you know those numbers are bad. So they may win, but they win way below their ROI. I want to see things that are positive ROIs, but also good percentages or horses that things that fit a horse specifically. I don't need to see random stats. I don't think random stats are helping anybody. And most horses, there aren't any specific stats, but some horses, there are things that are important to look up. Now, do you ever look into stuff kind of like the bounce with the buyers or maybe a horse, you know, as what I like to call the in and out, like good race, bad race, good race, bad race? Do you still look into that kind of stuff as well? Or do you think it's kind of hooey? I think it's a lot of hooey. I think it's a lot of retrofitting in general, though. I mean, I don't I'm not a guy who believes that bounce theory. I, I think it's I think it's a retrofitting thing in general. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Listen, these are my thoughts. It doesn't make me right. You know, whatever works for the handicappers works for them. Not, you know, don't say I don't want to do this because Andy Sterling sleeps, or I want to do because I believe it because I'm 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 far from perfect in, in every way. And people have hey, the great thing about handicapping is we can look at we can look at a race completely differently and come up with the same horse for different reasons. It doesn't the horse wins doesn't mean you're right, and I'm wrong, and I got lucky or you got lucky. I don't I don't know. It's whatever works for you. But I think you want to ask yourself why did a horse run well. Why did a horse run badly? And is there a reason for one or the other? I mean, a lot of the reasons a horse theoretically, to me, bounces is because it ran a big race. And normally when horses run really well, circumstance played a very big part of it. And the next time the horse runs, those circumstances don't rate to necessarily be in that horse's favor. So the horse didn't bounce. He just had a very favorable circumstance one day and an unfavorable circumstance the next day. So the idea is to ask yourself, is there a reason that a horse ran better than it could be expected or worse than could be expected? I want to get answers. Now, a lot of times you can't really find a real answer, but I think you should at least try. 
one good example would be like a golden rail with a speed horse. Now he's sure. out, out in the 12 post and won't get the lead this time. Yeah. I mean, those are, yeah, those are extreme examples, but certainly, I mean, I do the track trends for the program and the, and the website every day mm-hmm. for Naira tracks. And I, you know, I try to do the best I can and, and, and talk about it. And I think there's a perception that I'm looking for biases. It's not the contrary. I'm not at all. In fact, I love to look at a card and go, well, look fair to me. And I can just write track was fair today. That's both easier and I think it's better. And we've had a lot of those in the past. It seems like over the last year or so, we've had slightly more biases. You know, um, Saratoga, we saw a dead rail for a lot of the meet, which is unusual in Saratoga. Yeah. Um, Belmont, we saw a live rail for a lot of the meets, which is somewhat unusual. Aqueduct has been a very unusual track. This this meet in the dirt, unless it's rain and there's been moisture in the track, the track is played both very slowly and extremely unkind to closers. And I am somebody who is very reticent to use kickback as an excuse. I think kickback has become a catchphrase over the last few years. And I think a lot of it's BS. But I don't think it's BS in the case of Aqueduct this year. I think it's very clear that on the dirt, in many days, the track has been very slow. And horses that have been caught in the kickback have had very little chance. Um, you know, one of the few um, successful closers, and I know we're going to talk about it later, is the Remsen, the second-place finisher. Joel mm-hmm. Rosario kept that horse way out in the track and out of the kickback, so he was able to make a clear close. But it's very beneficial to speed. I think it looks like a speed track. I don't think it's a speed track. I think it's a track that is hindering closers. But, you know, listen, people can look at those track trends or not, and they also can look and think, I disagree with Andy, which is fine. And I'm going to say that, first of all, I may not always be right. I may not be right a lot. Um, but I, I, I always would want to encourage people to have their own ideas. They don't have to jive with mine. I'm happy to argue about them or not, but I don't think you should ever take people's things at face value. Use people's opinions and use them to see if your opinion agrees with them. You'll never learn anything in this game if you just say, oh, Andy says or Spencer says or whoever says. You know, What do you think? I think for me one thing, too, with biases, I think that people, as soon as two horses went on the front end, even if they're four to five and two to five, <laughs> Oh my God! We have a gold rail speed bias. It's aqueduct. Like, it's every gold rail. Yeah. Like, okay. Meanwhile, the three longest shots on the board all closed to get up for second, third, right. and fourth. So, uh, to me, and I, for, for me, I'm just now trying to really become a trip handicapper and really start watching more for bias. And it's tough because the amount you have to just go through. I think people, after a race is done, they just flip the page and they never go back and watch the race two, three, four times. They just watch it once when it's happening and once in the replay. And that's not enough to get all the info you need out of a race. Well, well, I'll tell you something interesting. I was talking about this with somebody the other day is that in a lot, look, trip handicapping has become much easier because we can all watch replays, whether you get them off formulator or time form or you watch them. Naira Betts has a great replay where you can get replays for every track everywhere. We've got every, you know, you don't get a lot of the Churchill Downs tracks. I know through, um, through, through, through Formulator, we've mm-hmm. got them all. Um, so I can just watch any replay I want at any time. So I don't even really take trip notes anymore. I don't have to. I mean, I know certain things to happen in races and I know different things, but I can just watch the races. Back in the day when I was playing full time, especially at Gulfstream, I remember the third year we, Andy Byer, I was living with Andy, and we, we, were, we used to tape the, the replay show at night. You got the, the pan shot. But otherwise, the replay centers were so arduous, right? You yeah. go to these centers, and they bring the tapes out, and watching eight races could take two hours. It was incredible. So what you did was at Gulfstream, we watched the race. As soon as the race was over, there was a channel at Gulfstream that showed both the pan and the head-on immediately following the race. 
So you'd watch the pan once, you'd watch it twice, you'd see the head on once. Then the race would go official, and they'd show the pan the head on again. So you'd get two shots of the head on and three at the pan, all in the space of about 10 minutes. And you'd get all the notes, and you'd try to get every horse down. There was a lot of big fields back then. But it was incredible work, but you also had the notes in your program. And then, you know, you, if you didn't miss things, you'd go back and find the replay, go to the replay center. But the reality was it taught you to watch races carefully and in a relatively short period of time. So it afforded me the opportunity to learn to watch races very carefully, you know, very well in short periods of time, where now you're sort of lazy, right? I can go back at any time I want. I can watch the replay. So it's good you can do that. But also, I think people that come along now, they don't get the same kind of education watching replays that a lot of us got 20 years ago or more. I think a lot of people still try and take shortcuts. I think the only way that you get good at this game is by learning and also by just putting in the hard work. If you're not putting, I hear some professionals say they put in, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. So like, and when I see the results on the track, I'm like, I guess that they're doing the right thing. And people just come in and get the form and expect to be winning the pick six every day. That's not the way to go about this. No, it, it's not, but you know, it doesn't, you don't want to tell people that in order to be successful or have any degree of success, they have to spend eight or 10 hours. They can do it in less time and get involved and still have fun. Mm -hmm. The thing is the difference now and then, you know, back in the nineties when I was playing full time, there was no formulator. You had to do all the work by hand to find live races. I think key race is a, is a disgusting word that's used so poorly by people. Two horses, one out of a race, therefore it's a key race. What if both of them came back and they were dropping significantly and they ran 10 buyer points worse? Was that a key race? No, it wasn't a key race at all. To me, a key race is a race where a significant number of um, participants, and I don't mean two, I mean four or five, came back and ran significantly better in subsequent starts. That means that that was a race that was actually better than it looks on paper, and you can actually elevate the horses coming out of it. The She Takes Charge maiden race back at last year at Aqueduct was one. And so I would go through the charts weeklies and look up all these horses, but occasionally you'd find something really interesting mm -hmm. and make a big score because of it. You also might have done you know, hours and hours and hours of work to get there, but the payoff for doing the work back in the day were really there. So a card now that takes five hours probably did take eight or more hours back then. It's much easier to do the work now. The problem is that the payoffs aren't as good because everybody's able to do it much more easily. So there's good and bad to it. I don't have to do the work I used to have to do, but I don't get the same kind of opportunities for scores we used to as well. I love that you brought up key race. One thing that I used to do for Formulaire was I would look up what the buyer was for the race, what the buyer par was in the form, I put that together in a little race note and then I write, you know, what horses came out and did what of, in subsequent races. And you'd be surprised how many times, like it would just be a seven to five favorite next time out. And the horse right. coming out of a race with six horses that ran off the board with four dropping. Well, you know, take the, a maiden race at Saratoga or Del Mar. They're going the two year old maiden race full of first time styles at Saratoga or Del Mar. Are you going to tell me there aren't going to be two winners out of that race in the next start? I mean, it seems almost impossible that there won't be a couple of horses to come out of a race like that to win their next start, right? One or, one or two of them are going to win in a maiden claiming race the next time. So to just say, oh, well, two horses won out of this base race on Whitney Day at Saratoga, therefore it's a key race. You've got to be kidding me, right? Uh -huh. uh, that's another example of people being lazy. Listen, people can do whatever they want, once again. But to me, a key race is a race where horses are running significantly better. And I'm not saying the buyer figure's wrong or whatever speed or, or Craig's figures at time form are wrong. Um, I'm saying that's just a weird race that for whatever reason, 
it's just a better race than it appeared. One thing, too, and we'll talk about with this first race, with this claiming race, is just that sometimes people just dig, they don't dig enough. Like, they'll be like, okay, I like three horses in this race, and I don't want to go deeper for a multi-race. Whereas if they had just gone one or two horses more, they'd find that little, you know, pricey gem horse that would make or break their pick five. Sure. I mean, yes, yes. Well, I mean, that's, that, but I think you're also getting into a situation where you want to, you or you would also talk about how you play these pick fives. Um, I, I firmly believe that Steve Chris' uh, multi-ticket method, you know, his ABC method is a very good way to play because it allows you to be wrong in one race. And if you're right, very much right in the other races where you can still win, give yourself a chance to get that long shot in the ticket. And if logic horses won the other races, then you could hit it. Um, and Saturday is actually a pretty reasonable example of that. What do you say we move on to these races? Aqueduct, race three, 20K clamber going seven furlongs on the dirt. I was listening to you on Talking Horses with Anthony, and you guys talked about how the number one, Candy Promises, the number four, Amino Cala Dude, and California Knight, the number five, were all big-time droppers. And you kind of just didn't know where to go after that, if you want to talk a little bit about that race. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's obviously Anthony and I disagree about a lot of things and you know he said you need to wrap it up just using one four five and I said I don't have a good idea on somebody else but I'm not sure I trust any of them it, it's a tough thing you know when you're playing a race and you say there's one big favorite drop down that I don't trust at all and I think there's an extremely good chance this horse isn't going to run okay that's good find you know your you know handicap the race without that horse and find where you want to go when you've got two like that, okay, now I'm going to say two horses need to not show up for me to be right. All right, that's a little tougher. When you've got three, it's very unlikely that one of them isn't going to show up. And mm-hmm. I do think in this case, the California Knight did show up, probably ending up down towards the inside didn't work in his favor and probably prevented him his best chance of winning. It's also important to note, and I know he lost by 13 lengths, but I'm an Ocala dude, very well may have won this race had he not stumbled badly after the start. The jockey lost the irons, came out, had to get back in the irons, and managed to actually get back in the race. So even though he lost by 13 lengths, I'm not sure I'm an Ocala dude might not have won had he not had that significant amount of unusual trouble at the start. But sometimes a lot of weird things happen. So the question is, who would be your fourth horse? Now, mine would not have been the winner, Tale of Mist. But if you want a redboard Tale of Mist, you can say, well, Tale of Mist is a horse that is relatively consistent in running his races, right? He runs a lot of mid to high 70 buyers, mm-hmm. which give him a fringe chance in this race if the others don't show up. Uh, the problem with Tale of Mist is he has just three wins and 36 starts going in the race and 19 seconds and thirds. So even when he runs his race, he rarely wins. He's also going out for a barn that while they've been doing okay at Aqueduct, I mean, they're a 5% barn this year, and 5% is usually their annual win percentage, so it's not unusual. It does seem like Eric Cancel, who wrote him, has been riding a little bit better. He has a new agent. He's been more aggressive, and it's been helping him out. So, I mean, I guess you can make some positives. He would have been a very tough horse for me to have on the ticket, so I can't tell you why I would have had him. I don't like the horse that was fourth choice in here, um, Majestic Affair. I think his career is sort of shot, but I'm not really sure where I would have gone besides I would have had trouble getting to the winner, but I can understand how I guess it could happen. But it's very hard to say I need all three suspect drop downs to not show up in this race because one of them is usually going to show up, if not two. The thing that I find very interesting is the one Candy Promises was off of the claim and dropping compared to the other two that were just dropping. 
usually when you see a claim and a drop, usually red flags pop up. Is that something that you kind of thought as well? Well, it is a horse that was claimed and owned by Mike Rapoli. Mike Rapoli is, a, is an owner that seems to like to win races, and you'll see him very often make moves where he's dropping horses because he's trying to get them in a circle. It was a cigar mile day, and he probably wanted to win a race. My bigger problem with Candy Promises was that he had shown two big wins, two and three back, and they were both completely dressed up by the fact that he was riding gold rails. So his two big wins that were making him a real favorite are phony races. I'm not saying he's not a talented horse, but he's not nearly as good as those races make him look. So I think there were reasons to be a little suspect about him in general. And then you get the claim, the layoff, and the drop-down. The claim layoff bothered me along with the drop-down. Rudy does have bad numbers dropping down, but it's a little mitigated by the owner. But when you put the whole thing together, he was the one of the three that I wanted the least. With the 20K claimer being in the middle of this pick five sequence, what what is your usual thing to do with these weaker type races being stuck right in the middle of the sequence? Well, I don't really care where they are or when they are. It's not that's not going to matter how I play them. But in a race like this, I'm going to want to find who's my alternative. My alternative would not have been tail and miss. I probably would have gone, you know, with a couple of them as A's, one of them as a B, and had a couple of C's. I don't think that I could have gotten tail and miss as the C. Maybe I could have. I'm not really sure. I didn't play this pick five. To be honest, I, I was preoccupied and too much going on. Um, this was a race you could spread because, to me, the first winner was an extremely likely winner. I also, the second winner was an extremely likely winner, and there are only two and a half, three horses that could really win the second race, at least in my opinion. So maybe I could have done that, you know, fairly easily. Uh, the problem, of course, in the sequence was that the fourth race was won by an utterly impossible horse. I'm not sure how you get him on your ticket. But this race, in general, I would have looked to put the logicals as A's and B's. Unless, it, listen, I could have a stronger opinion that I think there's a really good alternative. This was not a race where I saw a good alternative. Let's throw to the call for this 20K claimer. And they're off. It's Majestic Affair, who's going out for the lead from the inside, a winning drive, and Candy Promises as they head up the backstretch, and it's three of them across. Candy Promises, winning drive, and Majestic Affair, and those front three are joined by Tale of Mist, who's four wide, and they shot Sonny, who is five wide. And then we come back to uh, California Night, who's followed by Amino Cala Dude, then Too Hot to Even Speak, and Lucky Ramsey at the back in ninth. The quarter win in 23 and four-fifth seconds as they head for the far turn. It's Candy Promises down on the inside with a head in front of a winning drive. Then it's Majestic Affair. On the far outside is A Tale of Mist. Right behind the front four is California Knight and Amino Dude. Lucky Ramsey is now up to seventh, and they shot Sonny and a Too Hot to Even Speak. The half was running 47 and three-fifth seconds, and they are at the top of the stretch. Here is Tale of Mist. Now to take the lead over Candy Promises. Down on the inside is California Knight. Then we come back to Majestic Affair and Amino Caladude. California Knight continues to gain ground down at the rail. Tail of Mist on the outside. Tail of Mist and California Knight. It'll be between these two as they come on for the finish. Tail of Mist wins it by a head at 20 to 1. California Knight was second. Candy promises third. Tail of Mist is your winner going off at 22 1, paying 42 80. Andy, what horses do you think could have improved out of here? What horses are you looking to not 
come back and bet? Well, you know, I think in this situation, I'm not going to, these are horses that are going to show up in fairly logical spots. So it's not like a, a maiden race where I'm going to say, you know, who, who ran really well. And, and you know, keep in mind, uh, you know, I've been off yesterday and I haven't really spent a lot of time going over this, this card that strongly. I did send the biases, but that was pretty cut and dry. Um, I think Ivan Ocala Dude is obviously the worst. He figures to run better, but what kind of price is he going to be next time? Um, but I didn't really have any strong opinions coming out of this race one way or another. There was enough of a gap that I don't think he could use any track as an excuses. And I didn't think the horses in this race were going in the right direction anyway. I mean, California Knight at least ran a little bit in here, right? Um, yeah. Probably claimed out of this race. California Knight came from us. Ivan Ocala Dude were all claimed out of this race. Okay, promise is claimed by Chad Summers, and you know it's funny with Chad Summers because he's been, other than having that good horse, he's a trainer who's been basically a throwout during his training career. But suddenly at Aqueduct, his horses are really running. He had a long shot that almost won the other day behind a heavy favorite. I think that was Friday. Um, he had a horse, a firster win yesterday that that actually ran reasonably well to win a sort of weird race. But he had a logical type drop down win the other day too. But suddenly his horses aren't a throw out. You know, it's like AC Avia. He's four for seven at the, you know, in the last, at the, since we went to Aqueduct. So you got to be careful with trainers that have been throwouts in the past and they're starting to run. You have to start reevaluating their horses. So we'll see what Chad does with Candy Promises. California Knight went to Dave Tenizzo, who's historically has terrible numbers off the claim. But he was claimed by Flying P, and Flying P is a sort of winning operation. For trainers, what, at what point, like a weaker trainer, at what point do they kind of like start getting onto your radar? Like, is it two wins within a week? Is it just hitting the board with some long shots? Like, kind of talk to me about that kind of sequence. It's horses running better than they're supposed to be running. It's when horses, you know, really, their PP, they start running, and you go, geez, I can't, you know, okay, so one horse ran, and you're surprised. Well, you know, aberrational results happen all the time with everybody. But when suddenly, when, when suddenly, I mean, and I'm not trying to pick on Chad Summers, but mm-hmm. his record speaks for itself outside of Mind Your Biscuits over the last few years. Um, and, you know, there's been an enormous number of the percentage of horses claimed from him that have gone on to do well has been very high. But suddenly his horses are really running. So, yeah, I'm going to take a notice. I mean, there have been other trainers. You know, I mean, Rick Shosberg, who, in my opinion, back in, you know, back in the day, we're going back a ways. Rick was a very dangerous trainer. Rick trained a lot of very good horses. He was a superior trainer as first-time starters. And then he probably just had a lot of bad stock and for whatever reasons for a long period of time, you know, low percentage, and his horses just didn't do that well. And then suddenly at Aqueduct um, in April, towards the end of the meet at Aqueduct this year, he had like three horses that ran surprisingly well. I'm not sure they all won, but they may have. Big prices, significant buyer improvement. And I thought, here's a trainer I need to look at. And in fact, I made a few scores with horses of Rick's that really did move up, just seemed like things were working for them. I don't know why that's going on with a, with a particular trainer. I don't worry about why it's going on. I just know it's going on. And if a guy's horses during a period of time seem to be running better than could be expected, I think you need to pay attention to that. Clearly the ACOVIA thing, maybe, maybe we've missed the wedding with, with both he and Chad Summers and, you know, they won't win any more races, but keep, keep an eye on them. Don't, you know, don't just say, Oh, that trainer never wins and be dismissive. Start to, you know, keep an eye on them and see if you can expect maybe some improvement. I think that brings up a good point for the next race, Andy. Race seven at Aqueduct, the maiden special weight going six furlongs on the dirt. The two horses I ended up on in here were the 12 and the one. I'm a sucker for Jeremiah. I always have been. The way he was winning at Saratoga with these two-year-olds was just kind of uncanny. I like when I see a dam that's won 100,000. 
kind of shows me a little bit of back class for the horses I like. Obviously, Irad jumps on. And then just the amount they paid for King Kozan being out of a $4,000 sire, not to mention that the first three in the family, even though it was kind of a synthetic family, I mean, one was for one one four hundred k, one one two hundred, and then one one a hundred thousand. It just seemed very interesting in this race. Yeah, I, I had a very different opinion in this race. And my listen, my opinion, and I ended up picking the or second as my second choice was scratched, was I thought the winner was very vulnerable. Um, I'm not sure the winner wasn't vulnerable. I think he just got the right trip, and it turned out to be a mediocre race. But um, I did not like the twelve specifically. Um, a couple of reasons. Number one, Jeremiah Englehart's been pretty chilly since we got from Saratoga. And I know he won with a lot of first-timers at Saratoga, but how many bullets does any trainer have in their barn that they're going to keep winning with firsters? The other thing about the 12 was, did not like the horse's sales workout, and that horse had a significant turf pedigree. So uh, not the kind that I'm going to fall in love with. Um, as far as the one, well, the owner of that horse, who I'm friendly with, loves every horse he has. They all uh-huh. have to win, and I think that horse <laughs> had a turf pedigree either. Um I thought, I mean, I, I think the race was 10-3-11. I actually take a 3-10-11 and managed to make no money because I'm a moron. But um, first of all, the 10-11 the were the only horse with experience. And the 11 Eagle Man, who finished third, was coming out of a mediocre performance at Parks for a trainer that had won with a second-time starter, albeit turf the dirt, the other day. So maybe he's a trainer whose horses are going to take a step forward second time out. Um, as far as why I was interested in the second-place finisher, the second place finisher, Quixotic, uh, first of all, had a real pedigree. They paid $300,000 for a horse that was a first foal, but if you go back to the second generation, the dam is a very strong second family on that horse. And clearly, from a pedigree standpoint, the most dirt runners were coming from that horse, um, if you look into two generations. But also, that horse was owned by Ralph Evans, and Ralph Evans was a longtime owner for Rick Violet. And one thing that Ralph and Rick did very well was they teamed up with horses that were precocious or early. And that was a lot to do with Rick, too, who was very good with first-time starters. But this horse was purchased in September of 2018, and it seemed pretty likely to me because I know that while Rick passed away not that long after that, he was okay in Saratoga. And I thought there was a pretty good chance that Rick was at the two-year-old, that the yearling sale at Keeneland, and that Rick had probably bought this horse. And Rick was very good at picking out horses that were, you know, good two-year-olds. So I thought $300,000, good pedigree, probably bought by Rick Violet. Donovan Thomas has been very live lately. That could be an interesting first-time starter. And he seemed, in this case, more appealing to me than the others. In this case, it actually worked out. Most of the time, it doesn't. I don't want to suggest that I'm particularly brilliant because this it happened to work out. It didn't work out for me because I bet the race so badly. Regardless, that's why I liked him, and that's why I was not interested in the other first-time stars in the race. Jonathan Thomas. 24%. He hits the board over 50% of the time. And when I broke it down by first time starter, two year old dirt sprint, I think I came up with the stat that he was like 0 for 13, which I know isn't a lot of runners. But I just wonder for you, when you see a stat like that, is there ever a number that would finally matter? Would 0 for 30 have changed your mind? Uh, I don't know. How many of them? What were their prices? I want to look at their prices. Does he have a lot of ones that were 3 to 1 in there that failed? Um, I think of Jonathan as a trainer who's much better with turf. Um, first-time starters or turf starters in general. He wasn't for turf horses. He hasn't been training his own that long. I don't know. I Look where they ran. I mean, I know there were reasons to think that this specifically this horse could run. And don't forget, this horse ended up over 20 to 1, so I couldn't care less what his stats exactly. are. Exactly. Betting horse at a big exactly. price. Uh, I mean, so if, you, if you like horses for whatever reasons they are and they're big prices and you don't bet them because of a trainer stat, you're a complete idiot. <laughs> I mean – 
it's just like, why would you care? You know, trainer stats for me, trainer stats have very two, two general um, reasons to use them. Bad stats for short price horses and good stats for big price horses. Otherwise, I could, I, anybody that puts up bad stats for long price horses is doing a big, dramatic disservice to people who are watching the races. Should never put up bad stats for big price horses. It's just dumb. Now, the number 10 trash talker with Joel Rosario, his last race that he came out of, I thought was a little bit paceated by Blue Fractions from Timeform. And the number was a 70, so I kind of downgraded a little bit. And I know that the buyer par for this race, usually an 81, I don't know how much you look into buyer pars, but for me, if none of the horses that have ran have reached the buyer par, that was the reason I kind of looked for a first-time starter. The, the 12 on the outside, probably just a little bit too far outside. And like you said, Jeremiah had been cold. I just couldn't find anyone else. No, listen, I mean, you, you make the decisions you make. I know a lot of people like the 12. I did not. Um, I think Jeremiah has run the first-time starters that, we're good. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the horse's pedigree and I didn't like the horse's workout. So I it doesn't mean I'm right. I mean, he's one of the first time stars that I threw up for similar reasons and they won. So it's not like because I was right in this situation means that I had some sort of brilliant insight. The insight I had worked in this race. Um, and I agree with you. I think, I think that the, the point that, that we agree on and it turned out to be wrong was there figured to be at least one first time star that was better than trash talker. Trash Talker came out of a bad, phonied-up maiden race. Mm -hmm. The winner is a mediocre horse who had ridden the gold rail and is one good, seeming good race. His other races were not good. Um, the, so he was. there were a lot of reasons I like him. He comes out of a maiden race where a maiden claimer finished second. Um, I did not like his last race either, and I thought he was a very vulnerable horse. I ended up with him as my second choice because I didn't find any particular alternatives, but I agreed he was vulnerable. He was. Doesn't mean he couldn't win. Doesn't mean he wasn't going to be an A in your pick fives. But I thought he was vulnerable in banging the race. I turned out to be sort of wrong. Let's find out who won this maiden special weight right now. And they're off from the outside. It's a 2.0 along with Ego Man and Trash Talker. And towards the inside, it's Quixotic who's racing in fourth. Then we come back to Astronaut in fifth. It's a break of three lengths to uh, Maddie's Marauder along with uh, King Kozan. And down on the inside is the Angry Man. Then comes Bad Beat Brian, and Villainous trails the field in 10th. The quarter went in 23 and one-fifth seconds, and the favorite Trash Talker has emerged with the lead here. It's Trash Talker in front, three-quarters of a length. Eagle Man on the outside running in second, then 2.0, and Quixotic. King Kozan is running in fifth, followed by Matty's Marauder in sixth, and Astronaut is seventh, and the field is coming for the top of the stretch. And it is Trash Talker with the lead, ran the half in 47 and four-fifth seconds. Trash Talker trying to hold on here. Eagle Man is moving up, and right alongside is Quixotic. It's Trash Talker in front inside the eighth pole. Then Ego Man and Quixotic. Trash Talker still there. Trash Talker by a length and a half. And Trash Talker will get the job done at 7-5. to five. Quixotic got second, then Ego Man and the Angry Man. And that winner ended up being Trash Talker running a 68 buyer, going off as the favorite, paying just 480. Andy, was there anything with the trips here that you thought was a little interesting, or was it just kind of a horse going wire to wire? Well... Uh, you know, Quixotic, I think, and I'm not, I'm not whining because I, I could have won a bet, but I lost. Um, I think if Quixotic, he kind of, you know, he was stuck inside behind horses, so he actually ate some kickbacks. So even a seemingly good trip wasn't as great as it could have been. And it seemed like when he 
I agree very much with Gutierrez, and I like Ray Lou, of taking him off the inside, not trying to go inside of Trash Talker because we're, we're not rallying strongly inside in general. And you want to angle off the rail, get clear, but he never really seemed comfortable getting off, you know, and sort of being between horses with a third place finisher kind of leaning on him. And I think it prevented him from changing his leads as quickly as he would have wanted to. So I thought he was a little compromised. Instead of getting a perfect, 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 perfect trip, he just got a very good trip. So, you know, he had his chance to win, but he didn't didn't work out as perfectly. Otherwise, I didn't see a lot in this race that really meant much to me. I, I don't know. I didn't see anybody in this race that I'm dying to bet back, including the winner. I had my chance with Quixotic, and I he lost, so he got to move on. To me, usually, and not that I, I try to not judge all my you know results on numbers, but when the buyer par is an 81, and I know James Quinn says just to kind of cast your net a little wire to drop five points, so it would be a 76 for this race, and the winner runs a 68. I'm hoping that somebody, Quixotic, Eagle Man, end up being the favorite coming out into their next race and being able to play against them. Because this race, to me, just didn't seem like that good of a maiden race from top to bottom. I didn't think it looked like a good race going in. I thought it looked like a bad race coming out. I would agree with you. What do you say we jump in to our last race, race number nine? It was the grade two Remsen going a mile and eighth on the dirt. What did you do in here, Andy? I'm mad at myself for paying Shotsky the winner for Shotsky second and not putting him on top. Because I ended up betting him because of his price and mm-hmm. the ridiculously low price of the horse I put on top. I can't understand how Al 66 was eight to five in here. I'm not who sort of looked at him and thought he looked like an almost certain winner to me. Um, I think that this is a very good example of how the racetrack was, was, was aiding results. I'm not knocking Shotsky. I think he was a decent horse going in. I don't know why people were so dismissive of him. He seemed to fit very, very well in handicap the race. And on paper, he looked like the speed. And speed was very, very, speed was very good on Saturday. It wasn't good, I think, because the track was helping speed. And I rarely think that's the case. The track was hindering closers because the majority of closers run the kickback. They run behind horses and they take dirt. And this is a track, we talked about it earlier in the, in the podcast, that this has been attractive. It has been hurting horses that are eating the kickback. And it's interesting that Ajawi did run very well to be second here, but Joel Rosario kept him way out in the middle of the racetrack. So he was away, he was outside of the kickback for the most part, and that was intentional by Joel. I've actually talked to Joel about the kickback and the issue it's been at Aqueduct so far. I think Joel realized, I need to keep the source clear. I can't eat dirt the whole way or he's just going to give it up. And so one of the reasons he was able to put in his closing kick and he bounced back from a miserable performance at Keeneland was he was out in the clear. And I thought Ajaweed was the horse you probably want out of this race. Shotsky just was able to control at a very moderate pace. It was a much faster pace, or not much faster, but he went uh, 24-26 and 50-08, whereas Lake Avenue, while the reverse race went 24-70 and then 50-76. Those are pretty significantly different fractions. You're talking about four lengths difference. Mm-hmm. So while it wasn't a fast pace, it was faster than the cakewalk that Lake Avenue had. She's a nice horse, but she was gifted a race when every rider strangled back every speed horse. And apparently that's an imperative in, in racing in New York. Um, but Chosky did have things his own way, but I don't think I would want to say the pace was as slow as some might suggest it was, though it certainly wasn't a fast pace by any stretch of the imagination. He had the run of the race, and, you know, Ajawi didn't, but he did at least stay out of the kickback. Chase Tracker doesn't want to go this far, and Alpha 66 was caught way back in the race, but didn't do any running anyway. And, you know, so I don't, I didn't think there were any majorly surprising results in this race, and I thought the race was fairly cut and dry. 
Forza de Oro was the three to one morning line favorite and ended up going off at a little over five to one. Do you ever sense when you see a morning line horse go up above his morning line that they usually don't run well at all? Or is it because I've read that in certain handicapping books, as soon as that happens, it's usually a big red flag and try to avoid those horses as much as possible. Well, I wouldn't want to be the morning line maker. I'd probably make the worst morning line of all time. And I think David Aragona, who's been doing the morning line in New York for the last couple of years, has been doing a sensational job. I have the utmost respect for David's opinion, and I think the morning line has been great. And most of the time when I argue with him, he's right and I'm wrong. Um, I don't think I would have made him the favorite. I will say that my friend Anthony Stabile was convinced Alpha Six would be the favorite in there, and he was right. Um, I also thought Forza Oro was a complete joke in this race. I would have mm-hmm. looked every cent on him and every single pool <laughs> he was in. Um, from a handicapping standpoint, I, you know, I think that David was right that a lot of people would fall for him. Um, I know Anthony liked him, and I you know, told him that you know, he also liked Ajaweed second, and I didn't like him on all either, and he was right about him. So it's not like he was completely wrong with the race, but I just thought Forza Oro was slow. I don't see, I don't know what, I think people got excited about Forza Oro because of his debut. When he broke four to five lengths behind the field, and he made this big premature run around the turn and wide, and he faded and finished second to Ajawid, and then he comes back and wins. The problem was he came back and won in the same speed figure while breaking exactly. the field. So mm-hmm. in reality, to me, even though he won his second start, I don't even rest significantly, and I didn't think there was anything about him that made him appealing here, because also, he projected to be dead last early. Now, he got fifth early because he cut the corner, and on the mile and eighth races, you know, saving ground on the turn, kind of corner, creates the illusion that you have more speed than you do. So he kind of was in the race a little bit. But to me, he was a hopelessly slow horse early and a hopelessly slow horse late. And I didn't think he made any sense. So to me, 5 to 1, 15 to 1, 500 to 1, I couldn't have cared less. I didn't think he had a prayer going into this race. So his performance and his odds and anything just didn't matter to me because I didn't like him at all. In this case, I was right. I mean, I have those opinions of horses that also run well sometimes. Then we got, I didn't like Ajawid. He did run well in here. So in this case, I was right about Forza Oro. I didn't really care. If I think that David's really right and the horse is supposed to be five to two in a race, especially claiming races or maiden mm-hmm. races, and the horses go off at surprisingly high odds, we saw one on Sunday. Strike power was about as dead as a horse could be. I thought he figured to be one of the co-favorite, and he didn't take any money. And to me, that was a sign. That either I was wrong or I missed something in the race or they were telling you, stay away from this horse. I think this is the case with horses of the Euro. Now with Shotsky, you said that on paper it looked like he would get the lead. Was that also before or after you would also go on through time form to kind of get an idea? After. after? Okay. Yeah, time form had him at the controlling speed. And the more I looked at it, I didn't see any reason to disagree with that opinion. And Luis Saez is riding him. And Luis Saez seems to be the one rider that isn't with the program of rating speed horses. So I thought you've got a guy who likes to be aggressive with horses that's supposed to be in front of the field. That's usually a recipe for being in front of the field. You, and usually when you let a horse get off like that at 8-1, to one, that's what ends up being the winner. I thought the funny thing with Ajawid, too, to mix with Forces of the Oro was, if you look at the race two back, another race under slow blue fractions, the horse won with a 79 buyer with not the worst trip like Forces of the Oro, but he still under blue fractions had to close from a little farther back and ended up with a higher speed figure. So how Ajawid is 4-1 to one and Forces of the Oro is only 5-1, to one, I thought like that was extremely interesting when I was watching, watching the board before this race. That's a reasonable. That's a reasonable opinion. I think the difference. Well, here, I mean, I guess you could also say Ajawi came back, and in my opinion, ran badly at Keeneland. Mm-hmm. And for the problem with Forza Dora to me was not his first race, his second race. I know he won his second race. I thought it was an awful race. 
And I just think, yeah, he did run well first time out, but boy, I know he won second time. I didn't like his second race at all. Winning his second race, he's supposed to win and get an 83 buyer and sort of blast a field like the one he met. Exactly. So I didn't think he took a step forward at all. But listen, maybe some would say, well, you know, he didn't run. He ran well first time. He didn't run well the second time. He just got the good win. And now he's going to run really well. I wasn't that guy, but I guess some people were. But you're right. It is surprising that he was a bigger price than Ajaweed. But I guess some people saw Ajaweed as state-faced. I don't know. But maybe you're right. Maybe Forrest Fiora was theoretically dead on the board. For me, I'm just not sure he's a very good horse. I just, I, I was not my kind of horse. Let's see how Shotsky did on the lead in the grade two Remsen right now. And they're off. Chase Tracker from that inside post is going out for the lead. Now Shotsky ranging up on the outside to challenge. So it's Shotsky and Chase Tracker. One, two into the clubhouse turn. Forza Dioro is down at the rail as they race around that turn, head for the back stretch. Prince James has moved up into third. And informative is next in fourth. Forza Dioro runs in fifth. It's almost three lengths. Back to Cleon Jones in sixth. Aja Weed on the outside in seventh. At the back of the pack are Amens and Alpha 66. Opening quarter 24 and one fifth seconds. And it is Shotsky in front here. Shotsky in front, three-quarters of a length. Prince James on the outside in second. Then it is the trio of informative Forza Dioro and Chase Tracker down at the rail. Two and a half lengths to Aja Weed. Amens is on the outside. Then Alpha 66 and Cleon Jones. The half was run in 50 seconds. And now there's a half mile to the finish. And it is Shotsky still in front, three-quarters of a length. Prince James runs in second. Forza Dioro is in between horses. Chase Tracker is down at the rail. Informative is on the outside. Now it's four lengths. Back to Aja Weed, Cleon Jones, Alpha 66, and Amends is the trailer. Midway on the turn, Shotsky still in front. Prince James in second. Informative, big long shot on the outside in third. Then Chase Tracker. Aja Weed begins to pick it up just a bit. Then Forza Dioro. There's a quarter of a mile to the finish. And Shotsky has the lead. Shotsky gets clear now. It's Shotsky in front by four lengths. Aja Weed has moved into second. Then it's Informative and Chase Tracker as they pass the eighth pole. It's Shotsky with a three-length lead. Aja Weed driving in second. Shotsky trying to Hanging there for another 100 yards, and Shotsky has won the Remsen. Three quarters of a length over Aja Weed. Chase Tracker was third, and informative. Finished fourth. Shotsky goes wire to wire, paying 1960, and improved the buyer quite nicely, going from a 78 to an 86. Now, Andy, usually we have the Remsen haters every single year who may or may not be onto something when saying that these horses come out and they just don't do well come derby time. What's your thought on that? That's just idiotic. What, what's, what's doing well on Derby time? Winning? Well, one horse wins the Derby. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, so if a horse, if a horse that comes out of the race doesn't win the Derby, um, therefore it's a bad race. Let, let, now, I'm glad you brought this up because we were we were laughing about. Um, I think it was Ed DeRosa said something monstrously stupid on Twitter. Which, by the way, that was a one to nine shot because as I like Ed, but Ed's one to nine to say something monstrously stupid on Twitter pretty much on an hourly basis. So, and I think Ed would agree, by the way. I don't think he disagree, but he sort of knocked the race, and it just doesn't make any sense. Um, I'm on my computer, and I'm going to go over. I mean, if you looked at what the winner, what horse in the Remsen did, it, it's kind of crazy, right? The Remsen yeah. race that's had extremely good results, especially in recent years. So I'm not sure why somebody would knock the Remsen. Winning the Derby? Well, I, I don't know. It's a little hard to win the Derby, right? But 
let's see, Maximus Mischief got hurt. Maximus Mischief got hurt, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know. Catholic Boy won the, the Travers, the Travers, and the yeah. Belmont Derby. Yeah. And Motown actually won the um, Hollywood Derby the next year, a Grade One. Mo Heyman, he won the Fountain of Youth, and a lot of people thought he was wanting to be the Derby winner. He turned out to be a two-year-old that never improved. Mm-hmm. So he was bringing horse group. Okay, leave the light on was a disaster. He also got hurt. Um, there was some pig named Frosted that finished second to him while running against the bias. Frosted was best that day. He ran second to American Pharaoh in the in the Belmont and won the Whitney and Met Mile, right? So he was a bum coming out of it. That bum honor code won in 2013. Um, he won the Whitney and the Met Mile as well, right? He was a bad horse too, I guess, because he won the Remsen. He beat Cairo Prince, who got hurt, but is turning into a very good sire. Um, overanalyzed on their others, but Donner and Surf won it in 2010. Well, he won the Whit- the Woodward, right? Yeah. Court Vision won it in 2007. He won a Breeders' Cup race. Bluegrass Cat was second to, um, what's his name, Bar- Barbaro, and then he was second mm-hmm. to Bernardini and the Travers. So I, I don't know what they're talking about. The Remsen seems like it's been a pretty good race. I feel like, too, like when people talk, you know, all oh, these derby preps have to be downgraded or upgraded. Every Derby prep should be a grade two, and the Derby should yep. be a grade one. I just if anything, thought, I'd say the Remsen's a, a grade three. I mean, it's grade two race, but it should never be higher than that, right? And, I mean, it's two-year-old races. Why are they – right, I, I agree. I don't think there should be a single prep for the Kentucky Derby that's a grade one. And, if anything, they should all be grade twos. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I don't understand how they, and I never understood how they forget about the Wood Memorial. Why they downgrade the, 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 the bluegrass? At least give them a chance to restore it to its Grade One status on dirt. They downgrade it because of synthetic races. Well, mm-hmm. of course, the synthetic races were sort of ridiculous. At least give Keeneland a chance to show what it can do. But I, I don't, I agree with you. And this random, oh, the Arkansas Derby is a great prep for the Derby. Why? Because randomly the right horses have gone there. Because the American the Wood Memorial. Yeah. would be a great race. I mean, Escondrea was going to win the Triple Crown if he didn't get hurt. Should we downgrade the Wood Memorial because Escondrea got hurt? What about I Want Revenge? He was one of the favorites of the Derby. It's just, to me, it's retrofitting. It's just silly. Going back to this year's Remsen, anything trip-wise out of here? Do you think you want to see one horse coming out? Do you want to downgrade some horses? Well, I'd want to see what Shotsky can do, not under ideal circumstances, right? I mean, he yeah. really did have everything go his own way. I don't want to knock him, but let's see what he does when he's not able to control a pace and a moderate pace and attract this kind of horses that are forwardly placed or unkind of closers. I do think that Ajawit, you should definitely give him some credit for closing it to it, even if he was a bit outside the kickback. He did something the other horse didn't do, and he did it into a moderate pace. So I think that Ajawit would be the one horse you could take out of this race where you'd say, I want to, you know, I think you could be optimistic about him going forward and he didn't win. The others, I don't know. I wouldn't be overly optimistic about the others, especially going long. Do you think that we might see Shotsky stay up here in New York or because of the speed, he might end up going down south to Gulfstream where it's been kind of more of a speed favoring track we've we've seen and heard throughout the years? No idea. Absolutely none whatsoever. I'm, you know, this is a trainer who, and this is, I think, his first greatest stakes win. Mm-hmm. So I don't have, he doesn't have PPs for taking Derby contenders anywhere. That's very true, yeah. So I hope we see him again. I know we're going to see Independence Hall. In the uh, in the Jerome and Independence Hall is about as exciting a two-year-old as we've seen all year. In my opinion, he's the single best two-year-old we've seen all year. A hundred percent agree with you. I wanted to thank you so much today, Andy, for taking time with us 
and just uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you, with you again if I come up for Saratoga to be with the Bet Squad. Thank you so much. Anytime. For always good to, good to see you. Always good to hear from you. And anytime you, you want to call on me, I'm, I'm always around. Thank you so much, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show. And also thank you to my special guest, Andy Sterling, for being here today. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.